It's good to be together again. Amen? Amen. Well, last week, uh, there were many Americans who were glued to their television for an annual shared experience. It's a shared cultural experience, isn't it, the Super Bowl? It's hard to say if it was the game or the commercials that most people tuned in to watch. And last May, many Americans were glued to their televisions then as well for a different cultural phenomenon. It's the kind of group experience that really only television can provide for good or for ill. Unfortunately, one of the things this particular group experience did last May was promote a prevailing cultural myth. We're going to look at that here in just a moment. How many of you watched some seasons of or the finale of the TV series Lost? Anybody watch that? A handful of us watch that? Okay. Barb and I enjoy science fiction, and though this wasn't purely science fiction, it had many uh, elements of science fiction in it, fantasy and sci-fi, and it had some great character development and storyline that really kept you guessing, and that is if you were inclined to stick through all the twists and turns that the series gave you each week. Now, for fans of any popular TV show, especially a show that has a serial format, and that is that's a show that brings new revelations that build on each other week after week, the ending of a show like this is a shared experience. And that's why when Lost ended, it was a shared experience for many, and it provided many opportunities for conversations about, hey, what does this all mean? The show had what you might call a feel-good ending even if it didn't answer all the questions we had about the island and the mysteries there where the survivors of this plane crash were lost. But the very end of the program seemed pretty clear in its message. The message as this series ended was this cultural myth that I mentioned just a moment ago. This particular cultural myth is this. There are many paths to God. Lost brought you this message in such an emotional way that you had to notice, you had to pay attention. Christianity Today noticed, here's what one writer in uh, Christianity Today wrote, despite its strong spiritual themes, many of them quite biblical, lost ultimately embraces many religions. Without Jesus as Messiah, we are left with a do-it-yourself path to salvation, and no matter how many religions, statues, symbols, and icons you pile upon one another, as Lost did at the church in the finale's closing moments, it lacks true hope and any inkling of radical grace. A writer with the Chicago Tribune also noticed the message, though she viewed it a little more positively. Let me read some of her thoughts about the series finale of Lost. She wrote that after all the present, future, past machinations on this show, time did seem to stop in the last 20 minutes of the Lost series finale, she wrote. The closing sequence was a sort of hymn. It was an emotionally cathartic send-off. It was a beautiful reunion and a testament to what the show was about. Creating your own world. Creating your own fate. Creating a community of people that you can't exist without in any sphere before or after your death. This is a place that you all made together so that you could find each other. This is what a character on the show named Christian Shepherd said. And she writes, he did turn out to be a Christian shepherd guiding his lost sheep, didn't he? So here's how the finale landed for me, she writes. The emotional part of the finale worked so well that I don't care much about the analytical structural stuff. It felt right. 
it felt right won't work as the basis for someone's PhD thesis, but I'm really glad things turned out. The emotional delivery of the finale quiets my logical side. I don't know that all has to be answered, but sometimes I don't want to analyze things. I simply want to feel. And on that count, the end, that was the title of the finale, delivered. That's one person's thoughts about the ending of this series. So here we see another example of how a cultural myth is widely spread through television in this case. The producers create compelling characters, and you start caring about them, and you become interested in their lives. You become interested in their fate. Then, once you're interested and you start caring about them, you want everything to be okay. You want everything to turn out okay. So if there are many paths to God, as this show's ending proclaims, then all these characters that you care about end up being okay. It's an ending that feels right. And television and movies are a huge contributor to this particular cultural myth. There's another significant influence. There's several, but let me mention one other, and that's Oprah. Now, it's really hard to underestimate this woman's influence on spiritual themes in our country. She has an amazingly popular show. Speaking of Oprah, let me use the mention of her as an excuse to tell you about our speaker in three weeks, March 6th, three weeks from today. That's the week after our missions conference ends. We've been promoting and pushing our missions conference so hard, and we want you all to be there. But in three weeks, we're going to have a guest speaker again. No, Oprah's not speaking. But someone who's written a book about Oprah and her influence is speaking. His name's Dave Sterrett. He's an author and apologist. He wrote a book with Josh McDowell. Many of you know Josh McDowell. It's called Oh God, and has written other books too. He's speaking at our leaders' retreat that weekend, and then he'll stay to speak on Sunday morning and to the basic youth on Sunday night. Anyway, Oprah dismisses the idea that there is one way to God when she says, and I quote, There couldn't possibly be just one way. One of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live, she said. Instead, there are many paths to what you call God. So we have these significant cultural influences proposing and reinforcing something that so many people really want to believe. We have friends, we have family, we have neighbors. And we want them to be okay when they're gone. We know people who want to be okay with whatever path that they're pursuing in life. But unfortunately, that's not the truth. There are not many paths to God. Jesus said it quite clearly, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, reinforced this idea referring to Jesus when he said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So why am I telling you all this? When I began to sense direction for this morning's sermon, I really wondered about it. I even kind of argued with the Lord. Why does anybody here need to hear this? didn't make any sense that here in this fellowship at TCF, really sound doctrine preached through the years here at TCF. And then, of course, I experienced what most of us who preach experience later in the week when it's really too late to plan something else. We run into this moment where we think, 
Who gives a flip? Why does anybody care about this? Isn't that true, brothers, you who preach? Don't you, don't you run into that? And I hit it especially hard this time because I struggled with it at the outset. However, maybe there are some here who believe that there are many paths to God. Or you know what? There may be some who waver on this fundamental truth of our faith. And more importantly, even if there's nobody here who believes that, even if there's nobody here who's wavering on this idea, when we are all so completely immersed in a culture that believes this falsehood, when we have family, when we have friends, when we have acquaintances who believe this, it's really important to restate and reinforce what the Word of God tells us. You know, even water can erode rock. Have you ever been on a lake where you see where the water just kind of laps up and there's a, it creates a little hole in the rock? If you give it long enough time and steady enough influence on that rock, so we must be careful of the dangers of the amazingly pervasive influence of the culture we live in. We have to be careful that our culture does not erode the firm foundations of our faith. We have to periodically check our spiritual foundations and make sure that they're still holding up that building of our individual faith. And you know what? No one is immune to this kind of erosion. So if this morning you're very clear about this truth, and I'm assuming most of us are, well, let's consider this a sort of protectant sealant this morning. You know the sealant you spread on your wood decks to keep them from rotting? And if you're not clear about this truth, then listen carefully, because this is a truly foundational truth for all of us as followers of Christ. You know, we could cite several other examples of cultural myths that even Christians sometimes believe or at least struggle with. In fact, I thought of several, several months ago, and I think that some of these may become the themes of individual messages that I'll preach in the coming months if the Lord leads me in this direction. But, for example, they're related to this idea that there are many paths to God. There's this idea that there is no hell. Another clear example of how our cultural influences can erode over time a previously firmly held idea is the cultural myth that homosexuality is just an alternative lifestyle. Or how about this one? Feelings are all that matter. Or how about this idea? We see this memorialized in movies and television and commercials. It's not your fault. Or how about the related idea that if it's not your fault, then for everything wrong, somebody's responsible. Somebody has to be blamed, even for snowstorms, right? The common denominator of all these cultural myths is that they are formed and influenced by our culture. They've come to be widely accepted after an erosion of previously widely held ideas. They're all clearly unbiblical. They're ideas that are reinforced with emotion more than with fact or logic or truth. And they are all ultimately a product of our sin nature. So back to the key cultural myth that we're exploring today. There are many paths to God. If you want to upset someone in our society today, one of the surest ways you can do that is to make this claim. No one can get to God any other way than through Jesus. You make that claim and many people will call you narrow-minded. 
make that claim, some people will call you a bigot. Others might call you a snob. Most people will call you intolerant. And that's about currently the most um, common thing you'll be called, one of the worst things you can be called in our culture. It's, it's hard for somebody to call you something worse than intolerant. We have so many options in our lives. Why should it be any different when it comes to faith or religion? Of course, we are free to believe whatever we want to believe. And true tolerance, not the redefined tolerance our culture expects, means we allow people to believe what they want to believe without necessarily accepting it. But that doesn't make it true. That doesn't make it right. Jesus predicted that he himself would be a stumbling block. And this claim to exclusivity is a huge reason that Jesus is, in fact, the stone that makes men stumble and the rock that makes them fall. There's an author named Lee Strobel. Some of you have read some of his books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith. He thinks that this claim of exclusivity of Christ being the only way is so controversial because our culture has accepted what he says are three great myths about religion. He writes that the first myth about religion is that all religions are basically the same. Of course, he notes Christianity's exclusivity is tied to the uniqueness of Jesus himself. Where other religions promise to help you find truth, to find salvation, Jesus says he is the truth. He says he is eternal life, and he is the way to it. Strobel writes this, and I like this. Other religions are spelled do, requiring, requiring works, whereas Christianity is spelled done signifying Jesus' sacrifice for us. Did you know that there's a Buddhist parable that's very similar to the story of the prodigal son? But in the Buddhist parable, the prodigal son is required to work off the penalty for his sins. And of course, in our scriptures, the son is welcomed back with forgiveness and with grace. The second myth about religion is that Christianity is one philosophy among many. As we've noted, though we are, in fact, free here in America to practice and believe in pretty much anything we want to, that doesn't mean that all religions are equally valid, equally true. One key element that Christianity has going for it is that Jesus proved who he was by living a perfect life, by fulfilling prophecies made about him, by performing miracles, and by rising from the dead. And 500 people, the Word tells us, saw the risen Christ. This book, our Bible, includes their eyewitness testimony. You know what? That's another reason that many people want to debunk the Bible, as well as the claims of Jesus. If what the Word of God tells us is true and accurate, then these myths all fall apart. The third myth is that Christians are narrow-minded to think that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Yet if we have any understanding at all of what sin really is, what an incredible offense sin is against the absolute holiness of God, we realize that someone has to pay the price for this offense. The Bible clearly reveals Jesus as the only one who is qualified to pay it. Strobel tells this story of some friends of his. They had a baby girl who developed jaundice. 
That's a disorder of the liver that caused her skin and the whites of her eyes to turn yellow. A lot of babies have that. The pediatrician told them that jaundice can be a serious disease if you let it go. But it's also easily cured. All they had to do was put the baby under a special light that helps the liver function normally. Now, the parents could have listened to this course of treatment from the doctor and said, that sounds too easy. Just put her under a light. What if instead we just scrub her real hard with soap and water and dip her in bleach? Certainly, if we worked hard enough, we could get her normal coloring back. The doctor would have looked at them and said, you don't understand. There's only one way to cure your daughter. And the parents might have replied something like, well, what if we just ignore all this and pretend that everything's okay? The jaundice is your truth, Doc. It's not our truth. If we sincerely believe that, things will turn out best in the long haul. The doctor would have said, you're going to jeopardize the life of your child if you do that. There's only one way to cure her. You're hesitant to pursue treatment because it sounds too easy. But look at these credentials on my wall. I've studied at medical school. I've used what I've learned to treat and cure countless babies. You have to trust me. Now think about this. Would anybody accuse those parents of being narrow-minded if they trusted this doctor with his credentials, with his track record, and pursued the only course of treatment that was going to cure their little girl? Of course not. That's not being narrow-minded. That's acting rationally. And that's believing the evidence that you see. Every person in this room has a terminal illness called sin. The reason those of us who follow Jesus cling to him so tightly is that he is the great physician who has the only cure. We could try to scrub away our sins with good deeds, but it will not work. We can sincerely think that there are other ways of dealing with it but we would be sincerely wrong. The truth is that the only, the only the great physician offers a treatment that will erase the stain of sin. He has credentials and credibility to back him up. So when we turn to him, we're not being narrow-minded. We are acting rationally and in accordance with the evidence. Jesus' claim to exclusivity begins with the passage from John that we read early, John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The word translated way here means a road. By implication, a progress, route, act, or distance. Figuratively, it means a mode or a means, a journey, a way, or a highway. But what the word has to say about this way, this one way, doesn't end there. Many passages of Scripture, in addition to Peter's proclamation in Acts, which we read a moment ago, reinforce the exclusivity of Jesus' claims about himself. This is not an isolated theme in the New Testament. The two verses we've already referred to are the two clearest, easiest verses, and they're the ones we refer to most often. But they're not the only thing there. This is not just a single statement of Jesus. So I want to spend a few minutes exploring just a sampling of some of the scriptures that teach the claim of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way to God. How about, for starters, John chapter 10, verse 7, where Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. 
How about Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Of course, Jesus is that new and living way described in this verse in Hebrews 10. In Matthew chapter 7, we see this, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. It's interesting to note that according to a Los Angeles Times story that Randy Alcorn quotes in his book, Heaven, Every Amer- for every American who believes he's going to hell, 120 people believe they're going to heaven. This tells us how widespread this cultural myth that there are many paths to God really is. But Jesus said he is the gate. And in Matthew, in the passage we just read, Jesus tells us that only a few find it. He tells us that the gate is narrow. Taking into account what this passage tells us, the opposite of the narrow gate is the broad road that leads to destruction. And I think that broad road must include those many paths to God that so many seem to believe in. We read in John chapter 1, beginning with verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This passage explodes kind of a related cultural myth. If it's true that there are many paths to God, then we're all children of God. How many times have you heard that? We're all God's children. Maybe you've said it yourself. But you know, according to Scripture, there's one big problem. It's not true. It's not true. We are not all children of God of God. John tells us that all who receive him, that is, receive Jesus, those are the ones who become children of God. So yes, we may be all God's creatures. That's a fact. We're all God's creatures. But again, here's an exclusivity that goes against the grain of this cultural myth. We're not all God's children. John chapter 3, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. I don't know about you, that sounds pretty exclusive to me. As do these verses from 1 John. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. 1 John 2, verse 23, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. We see from these many verses, from the Gospel of John and from the epistles, 
that John wrote that this was a recurring theme of his, the exclusivity of Jesus' claim as the only way to salvation. We see it again in John chapter 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And my last example this morning, from among many more that I could mention, is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It's important to recognize that a study of Scripture shows us that any entry into God's presence is mediated. That means we can't get in on our own. We need a mediator. We need a go-between. It was true in the Old Testament. We see that in the Old Testament sacrificial system. We see it here in the New Testament too. We need someone who can get us in. We need someone who can represent our interests as well as the interests of the offended party. In this case, that's God, whose holiness is offended by our sin. You know, think about this. It's practically impossible for any ordinary citizen to get in to visit with the President of the United States. He's the one in charge of our country, unless you know someone who can get you in, like a congressman or a senator. Just as we cannot get in to see God, who's in charge of everything, without someone representing our cause, without someone making a way for us to get in. There's only one person who has the right to enter the presence of God on his own. And the only way we can get to God is through him. Jesus said it clearly, I'm the way. No one gets to God except through me. Author Erwin Lutzer writes this, Perhaps now we understand why there are not many ways into God's presence. Only one person is able to meet God's requirements for a mediator. Only one person can give us the perfection we need to stand with confidence in the presence of the Almighty. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Mathematics, like all truth, reminds us that there's only one way to be right, but many ways to be wrong. Think about this. If you live in Tulsa, there are a handful of bridges to get you from one side of the Arkansas River to the other. Now, you can choose the 21st Street Bridge, you can choose the I-44 Bridge, maybe the 71st Street Bridge. You can sit by the river all day, and you can discuss which one's the best one to cross to get to the other side. And of course, the point of this analogy is that you have to weigh the evidence and decide which is best and then choose. You do have to choose. If you don't choose, you'll never cross the river. But this analogy is only so useful, and it breaks down here, because you can, in fact, choose different ways to get from one side of the river to the other. There's different bridges that you can cross and still get to the other side. So think about it this way. Of course, you do have to choose. But what if there are many bridges to cross the river, yet only one that would not crumble when you crossed it? Only one is actually strong enough, sturdy enough to hold your weight to help you get to the other side. Which bridge would you want to cross? That's an easy answer, right? That's what Jesus is telling us. He's the only bridge you can cross, even if it looks as if there may be many other bridges to get us to God, there are not. When it comes to eternal life, there's only one bridge, only one way. It's the bridge that our dear sister Johanna Vassanen finished crossing 
from this life to the next on Friday morning. It's the bridge we can cross if only we take the right way there. All men are by nature condemned. There is but one way of being delivered from this state, by believing on the Son of God. They who do not believe or remain in that state are still condemned, for they have not embraced the only way in which they can be freed from it. We live in a culture that believes there are many paths to God. What's more, our culture also seems to think that one of the worst offenses we can commit is insisting that something is not just true for us, but it's true for everybody. I'm not suggesting that we be obnoxious in any way about this truth. The very idea of this exclusivity is enough to offend most people without our obnoxiousness making it more offensive. We need to be winsome. We need to be gentle. We need to be kind and compassionate in our approach. But these days, spirituality is a big thing. And with that spirituality, we see a growing acceptance that there are many different ways we can reach God. Creeds are out, feelings are in. There was a state university where a sign read, it's okay for you to think you are right. It is not okay for you to think someone else is wrong. That's our culture's nonsensical, redefined definition of tolerance. Yet despite the widespread belief in these myths about religion and this key cultural myth that we're looking at this morning, that there are many paths to God, if we believe Scripture, Christianity is absolutely unique. We can't reconcile Christianity with Islam. We can't reconcile Christianity with Buddhism. We can't reconcile Christianity with any other religion. Jesus said, I am the way. He said, no one comes to God except through me. Why do we do what we do at TCF? Why do we do it? The next few weeks, we're going to focus on world missions with our annual missions conference. We're going to hear and learn about another religion. Why would we do missions at all if there are many paths to God? Why sacrifice? And you know, our missionaries sacrifice, don't they? Why risk? And our missionaries do. Many of them risk. Why risk if there are many paths to God? Here's why. There are not many paths to God. There's one way to heaven. And we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and there is none beside him. Let's be sure that this truth takes root in us and becomes a part of our faith foundation because it's a critical component in our motivation as believers, as recipients and witnesses of his saving grace. Amen? Heavenly Father, we're grateful. And Lord, we think that we don't want to be critical of the reality that there are not many paths to God, but we want to be grateful that you made a path for undeserving sinful people like us. You made a path. You made a way. You made a means for us to have access to our Heavenly Father and to spend eternal life with you. We're grateful for that, Father God. We pray that you would solidify this understanding in each of our hearts. And Father, that the
cultural erosion that takes place all around us that we have to face daily in so many different ways, in things we read and things we hear and things we listen to and things we view and movies and on television and even with our friends and family, this erosion is there. We pray that you'd protect us from this. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us, Father, to be very firm and very clear about exactly what Jesus told us, that he is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. Amen.